So in the summer of 2012, uh, I was between my junior and senior year of college. You can stop doing the math now. Uh, I was at Northwestern, and I decided to take a trip to Niger, West Africa. Uh, some friends had invited me. Here's Niger on a map. Um, and I was going to be working in a hospital called Galmi, right? So Galmi is it's a hospital in the middle of sort of the south Saharan desert, south part of the Saharan desert. Uh, it's the only hospital within a 100-mile radius, right? Um, and we're like right near the border of uh, Nigeria, the north of Nigeria, south of Niger. Uh, and it's right in the middle of Hausa land, the, the people of Hausa. So um, I decided to take this trip to Galmi. Uh, and the place that you fly into Niger is the capital. It's Niamey. Uh, and I have another map here. So Niamey is about a two-hour bush plane flight uh, from Galmi, right? So you can just take a two-hour bush plane. Or if you enjoy pain, uh, it is an eight-hour non-air-conditioned bus ride, right, um, on a barely paved highway. Uh, and apparently I enjoy pain uh, because I decided when I went that I wanted to take the bus from Niamey to Galmi. Now, part of it was wanting to see the countryside, wanting to experience um, sort of the country in a different way, right? Um, another part of it what I, was I was told that there was one herd of giraffes in this area, one total herd, uh, and it often traveled up and down the road that we took. And so I was like, I know there's less than 5% chance of seeing this, but I wanna take that chance and potentially see these giraffes, right? I knew I would not get to see them in Galmi. Um, there wasn't much like wildlife where we were in the hospital. So I was like, why not try uh, and see these drafts. So I get on the bus, put in my headphones, and I'm like, God, let me see these drafts. I know it doesn't mean, maybe even mean much, but I, I, that would just be so cool, right? And sure enough, about two hours into the bus ride, I'm listening to Bon Iver, uh, because I was a very typical um, white person in 2012, I guess. Um, and I, I'm sitting there listening, I'm just already feeling it, you know, and, and the giraffes or to my left, uh, it, yeah, it, and it was, just, it was just beautiful. And uh, this is actually not a picture I took, I wish I could say that, but <laughs> I should have let you believe it. But I, I just like could not believe it. It took everything within me for whatever reason, maybe it was the, the slow, sultry music, but it, it took everything within me not to cry, right? Because I was just captured by God's beauty, that he would even listen to me in this small, small moment. Who was I, right? Thank God I was dehydrated because I don't think I had any tears, but I really, really did want to cry, right? And when I think about that moment, I think about these types of moments that just sort of transcend anything else going on in our lives, right? Those, those sort of moments where we're just, we're captured by God and his beauty and just sort of in awe of who he is, right? I've had quite a few of these experiences, um, but they never last, do they, right? Um, the, the experience wears off, the emotion goes away, and I wonder why it can't always be like that, right? Like, why can't I always just, like, live in the sense of awe? See, I think there's a gap between the way that we want life to be and the way, way life is, right? There's a gap. Well, I, I'll be honest, I've had a fairly easy life, um, but there, some of my best moments are like, for example, the Cubs winning the World Series had a migraine during it. Like, come on, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I, I, so I experience migraines pretty regularly, actually, and so a lot of my best moments are sort of ruined by that. I experience chronic bodily pain. And, and so many of us, regardless of our life experience, can point to moments where we thought, I thought this thing in my life would be like this, but it hasn't been like this, right? It falls short of our expectations. And I, know, I just don't mean like things or even relationships can disappoint us. I think in general, even if things aren't, are going well, we can have this sense of maybe like dissatisfaction that permeates all aspects of life sometimes, right? I know some of us, maybe Fred is like an eternal optimist, so maybe I'm talking to everyone. No, I'm just uh, but I do feel like there, there's a level of, even when I'm like happy, there's a level of like either like, will this end soon, right? Is it, when is this going to be taken from me? Or like, am I really like satisfied where I'm at? Maybe you guys aren't like me. That's just me. But it's true. Or maybe it, for you, it manifests itself in apathy, right? Uh, uh, again, once again, age myself with music, but Gregory Allen Isaacoff put it this way. He said, I'm sort of happy most of the time, right? Most of the time. I explained this gap two weeks ago in my sermon in another way. I called it our present gloom, right? However you define it, I want you to think for yourself, uh, to yourself for a moment, where does this gap exist for you? Where do you seem to be currently disappointed by life? Or does it man itself, itself uh, in general dissatisfaction or apathy for you? So take a second, just think about this. All right, enough thinking. Uh, see, I, th- I think in the church in general, we are really good at quicking, quickly giving solutions to the gap. These sort of let God and, or let go and let God statements that permeate our culture as Christians, right? Get through this moment so we can be triumphant about the end of the story. But what happens when the story doesn't have a happy ending, right? Or what happens when we can't hear God in these moments despite a deep desire to hear for him, to hear from him? If I'm being honest with myself, there have been so many moments where I say, God, where are you? Only for it to feel like the other end is silent, right? I also think we are bad. So maybe we're good at giving quick solutions, but I think we're bad at asking why the gap exists in the first place, particularly in the church, right? I don't know why, but I think maybe we're worried about what we might conclude about God if we truly ask why he might be allowing these particular things to happen. Well, this morning, I want to explore two questions that are related to this. I want to explore, maybe, why does this gap exist? What are some of the reasons that this gap exists? Or to go with the imagery in our passage that Chris already read, uh, why does the desert exist? And then the second question is this, what do we do in the desert? You guys with me? All right, let me pray. I know that was a long intro, but it was the intro, just to reorient your expectations. All right, <laughs> Lord, let me pray. Uh, Lord, yeah, I, I feel a little chaotic this morning, a little, a little tired, a little, um, I, don't, I don't know. But Lord, I just, I just want to submit myself to you. Lord, whatever's from me, let it be forgotten. Whatever's from you, let it be heard this morning. Your glory, not mine, Lord. Your truth, not mine. So Lord, help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen. All right, so let's jump into our text. Just like two weeks ago, 
we jump in in uh, seemingly middle of an idea, right? He says, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. But why is Isaiah talking about a desert and a wilderness at the beginning of a chapter? Well, as we do, we got to go back a chapter and check, right? Now, chapter 34 is a long one, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the whole chapter is about God's judgment coming upon the land. Here's an example from, chapter, from the chapter in verses 9 and 10. It says, And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch, barren land. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So the land itself is what God is talking about, is actually experiencing judgment from God Yes. This is actually an idea that permeates the Bible that we don't talk about a ton. Look at Romans 8.20. It says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So creation itself is subjected to judgment, right? Or subjected to frustration is what it says here. This idea is everywhere in the Bible. You have these examples of the lands being subjected to suffering, you also have ideas where the land is as joyous as a result of God. So for some reason, the land responds to God, right? Which is kind of a weird idea. Well, this takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of man, Genesis. We know the story, right? God created man. Man lived in the garden with God. Man was alone, so God created woman. God said, don't eat of the, of the tree. They eat of the tree, Right? and they're kicked out of the garden, having introduced sin into their world. And here, that's, that's the important part. Because I think when we think about sin, I think we almost, think almost completely in terms of personal impact, right? In other words, we think of sin as individual acts going against the will of God, and this sin hurts the person who does sin and the people around them, right? And, and that's true. Those are all true. But I think it's too simple of a way to think about sin, See, when I first became a Christian, I learned that part of the way sin is talked about in the Bible uh, is through an archery term. If I was shooting at a target, sin is missing the bullseye, is missing the mark, right? Some of you have heard this before. It's, it's the way we miss the plan of God for our lives, right? And, and again, this is true. Like that, that idea is definitely true, but it's not the whole story. See, in the Old Testament, it talks about sin far deeper, Sin is not just an act of disobedience. Sin is a virus that infects every level of our world, right? Instead of an arrow at a target, it's as if sin is me dropping a rock in the lake. And it's going to affect where I am in that lake, right? But what happens? There's reverberating effects, right? It hits, it hits, it hits. And so when we think about that first sin, it's like dropping a boulder in a lake and everything else is disrupted. Shalom is disrupted as a result of sin. And so there can be realities where even if someone does not individually sin, there can be things that happen in our world that are a result of sin. Let me give you an example. Let's say like pancreatic cancer, for example, right? It's not going to be the direct result of an individual sin that someone gets pancreatic cancer, right? but it is the result of living in a world that is broken by sin, right? If sin did not exist, 
cancer would not exist, right? If sin did not exist, death would not exist. But they do because it does. You guys with me? And so this, this idea is really, really important to understand because it not only opens us up to understanding things like systemic injustice, reparations, climate change, ideas like this, it also opens us up to understanding the Bible better, right? Which brings us back to our idea of the land being cursed and back to Genesis. See, when man and woman, Adam and Eve, were kicked out of the garden, look at what God says. It says, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Right? See, there are individual consequences for Adam's sin here, right? It's going to be hard to toil the ground. It's, work is hard, right? Getting food is hard. But what else is true? Cursed is the ground because of you. It will produce thorns and thistles. In other words, creation, what does it say in Romans 8.20? Creation was subjected to frustration, right? And so when we're looking at Isaiah 34, that's what this idea is, is that the ground, God's judgment is coming on the people of Israel, and the ground is subjected to frustration as a result of them. God's judgment leads to a cursing of the ground as a result of our sin. Our world at every level is broken. The boulder has been dropped in the lake, and the reverberation, the disruption of shalom is felt. So this begins to answer our first question, right? Why does the desert exist? Both in a literal sense and in a metaphorical sense, right? In large part, the gap, the desert exists because of our sin and because of the sin condition of the world, right? There's just a reality that life is not as it was intended to be because of sin, we can experience these disappointments, the thirst, the dryness of the desert, per se, because we live in a broken world that will constantly promise to fulfill our desires, but it will never deliver on those promises. So not just that you experience dryness because of your own sin, which can be true too, but because of the general condition, right? You with me? So then I think logically another question arises. Why does God himself allow the desert to exist? Not just like, why does it exist? Why does God allow it, right? Where is God in the midst of the gap, in the midst of the desert? And to be completely honest, I'm not going to explore every um, sort of explanation for suffering in the world, right? I don't have that kind of time. But I want to provide one response that can be a bit hard to hear, and if applied incorrectly, can be really damaging. So we have to be really, really careful and treat it with care. So I want to say that in saying this. I'm not saying that suffering is good, right? Or that God thinks suffering is good. That's not what I'm saying. And also, this, this response is going to maybe bring up more questions than it does answers sometimes. But I don't want to be afraid of exploring these hard questions, right? We as, a, we as a church have avoided a lot of hard questions. And as a result, people ask, why are you avoiding the hard questions, Right? The reason I believe God sometimes allows for the gap to exist is because it draws us back to him. What do I mean? If we were never to experience the gap, the difference between our expectations and reality, what need would we have for him, right? Your body tells you you're thirsty because you need water. 
your tummy is rumbling probably because you have food or IBS, right? But it tells you you have food. Sorry, <laughs> talking about myself for a second. Um, right? We feel pain when we touch something that's hot in order to protect us, right? Our hearts are restless because we need God. Augustine says it this way, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Blaise Pascal, he's a mathematician, he said this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. The desert is a reminder that our thirst cannot be quenched by this world. The wilderness reminds us that we are not at home until we are with God in the cool of the garden. So why the gap? Because God uses the gap to draw us back to himself, who is true satisfaction, true joy, true gladness. So what do we do in the meantime, right? That's, that's the next question we have. Well, before I completely answer that question, I do want to actually take some time to look at our passage because our passage, once again, sort of like it did two weeks ago, gives us this picture of what is to come, right? And so I didn't want to preach the exact same sermon uh, about hope and what is to come, but I do want to look at it quickly, right? Because that's important for us to know. What is to come? What, is, what, will, we, what will be true that is not currently true? What future glory do we have to look at while experiencing present gloom, right? Okay, um, and for those of you who don't know, maybe I should have started with this, but we have been looking for the season of Advent at the prophecies, uh, particularly about Jesus in Isaiah, right? And so this is sort of another example of what is to come as a result of Jesus' coming. So let's look at Isaiah 35. So the author moves directly from the curse of the ground in Isaiah 34 to this. He says, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, I didn't know how to say that until Chris read it, so thank you. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. In other words, God will reverse the curse, right? He will directly fix one of the consequences of sin. He'll, he'll, he'll fix them all, but this is, direct, this is one of them, right? I already showed you some parallel ideas from Romans 8, but look at the rest of the passage I quoted already. So let's go back to Romans 8, 19 through 23 says this. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So creation is waiting in eager expectation for God, Right? For the creation, again, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. So not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly, just like uh, creation, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and daughtership, the redemption of our bodies. So there will come a time where God addresses the impact of, sh of sin on the shalom of our world, right? As is the consistent theme in our series, I believe the ushering in of this, is, of this reality begins at the birth of Jesus and will come fully to fruition in his second coming that is not yet here. 
and we will be participants, participants in this. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, what is true now, right? And it will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In other words, I believe Paul is saying that God will redeem the land, and he will in some way use us to bring the land into freedom, right? Like, now, I don't know what that means directly, but it says that creation is waiting for the sons of God, sons and daughters of God, right? And we're here, so, but it's, I think it's waiting for our full redemption so that we might take part in the full redemption of the land. So our hope in this is both an acknowledgement of the present gloom, the effects sin has on our world, and an awareness of the future glory, the liberation from the bondage of decay, right? All right, let's continue in Isaiah 35. Three and four say, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the, the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. So our author was talking about future saving of the land, right? And then what does he do? He switches back to the present. Because of this future reality, tell the people this. Do this to the people, right? Our God will come. For us this morning, I don't know everything all of you are experiencing, but our God will come. You know how I know this? Because he came already, right? And then he got up from the grave and he said, I'm going to come again. We do not have a God that is unaware of our sufferings. We have a God who saw Hagar, right? After she was rejected and put out by the man of God, Abram, right? We have a God who saw and heard the cries of his people in Egypt, right? And he sent Moses. We have a God who hears our cries, who sees us in the wilderness. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Okay, Con let's continue in the verse, or in the Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 7. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsting ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. So our author continues with the way in, in which redemption comes, right? So he went future, present, back to future. It seems somewhat straightforward, but what is happening in verses five and six, I think is far deeper than it seems, right? I think he's not just sort of like hitting on what is going to happen, but I think he's actually making a callback to chapter six, which is a pretty popular uh, passage. So in chapter six of Isaiah, I don't have it up here, but it's where God, oh, I will have it up here, sorry, but it's where God is call, calling Isaiah to be his prophet, right? And so Isaiah has this vision of God in the throne room. They have the huge creatures that are flying saying like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And Isaiah is just in awe. He becomes aware of his own sin in the presence of a perfect God. He becomes aware of the, the sin of his people in the presence of a perfect God, and God redeems Isaiah. And then God says, who will go for me, right? And Isaiah says, I will, before God says, or tells him what he's going into, right? And then we have verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6. This is what God tells him to do. He says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the hearts of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their ears. 
Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And so put yourselves in Isaiah's shoes right now, right? Isaiah is called into the throne room. He sees the beauty of the Lord. And in the moment, God is like, who will go for me? And, and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God is like, okay, go tell the people that they're not going to understand anything you're going to say, right? And, like, and, and then Isaiah, a little bit later, it, God is like, again, who will go for me? Or, or God says, jump. And then Isaiah says, how high, right? Um, he, he continues, right? And so there's this, there's this level of like Isaiah's ministry that is miserable, right? That where he's saying, none of the people are going to understand you. None of the people are going to be able to hear you. None of the people are going to take your words and actually act with them, right? Which is just like a crappy ministry, <laughs> right? You think about it, like that sucks, right? But then what does he say about what the people will do in the future back in, in Isaiah 35, right? God is speaking of a better ministry to come. He is speaking of the veil being lifted from the eyes of the people, that they might perceive what God has for him, that he is their redeemer, their healer, right? So God is promising Isaiah and even the people that they will understand, that there will be hearing, there will be seeing. And then pay attention to the verbiage that is used here. Are the, were these verbs, I guess, I don't know if we have it so, but are they active or passive? Do you guys remember? I'll just tell you. They were passive, right? Uh, in, in other words, the people are not doing these things themselves, right? But someone else is doing them. They do not make themselves see. Who does? God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't, you, you, the easy answer is sometimes the right one, right? <laughs> Their eyes are opened by God, right? They do not make themselves hear. Who does? God. Their eyes are unstopped by God. The ministry of Jesus is only by the grace of God, right? We cannot perceive or understand him on our own, but we have been given grace to do so. And then he continues with the healing of the land. Water will gush forth. Grass and reeds will sprout. Life and life abundantly will thrive because God has redeemed his people and his land, right? Okay, the last three verses, and then we're going to sort of walk away with what do we do with this? You guys with me? All right, I know I've, I've been speaking long, but we're still together. All right, in a highway, verse eight, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will what, church? Flee away. away. That's right. You are with me. (laughs) Now, I love this ending for a few reasons, right? But when I was doing my research on this passage and reading a few, listening to a few other things that people had said, honestly, I came away with some conclusions that I don't think are right. See, people would say this sort of thing, live righteously and gladness and joy will be yours. And I do think that there's a little bit of merit to this, but I think it gets two things wrong. It it puts the entirety of the onus on us, and it can be interpreted in a way that's a bit of like health and wealth, right? Prosperity gospel. Live rightly, and God will give you these things. You live good, your life will be good, right? And that's just not true, right? But look at how the people 
who are on the way of holiness are talked about. They are those who are redeemed, those the Lord has rescued. It is once again highlighting the grace of God, right? That God does the work, that living holy, living righteously is important. Don't get me wrong, but we do not keep on sinning so that grace may abound, right? By no means. But we do, we do recognize that it's by God's grace that we are on the highway at all. And what is the outcome of being rescued and redeemed by God? Everlasting joy, overwhelming gladness, sorrow and sighing will what? Flee away. While we can experience aspects of this joy at this time, we will not experience it fully on this side of eternity. But grab, grab, hope, grab hold of this pr- promise, right? There will come a day where the joy and the gladness are everlasting and the sorrow and the sighing are no more. But in the meantime, as we occupy the desert, what do we do? This is how we'll finish up. I believe we have three options and one is correct, right? Those three options are escape. You probably already know which one I'm going to go with, but escape, pretend, or thirst, okay? Escape, pretend, or thirst. First, the choice to escape. I believe this is the most popular choice from the world's perspective. The world tells us that such and such will make us happy, right? And so we seek to escape the pain or the monotony, the dissatisfaction, the apathy, and we fulfill ourselves with this. It's a type of numbing, a forgetting, a distracting ourselves from the gap, right? Now, in general, also, I think people who can fully escape have to have significant privilege to avoid particular things about life too, right? But that's a different conversation. Because even then, you'll run into reality eventually. And you'll be so utterly unprepared because of how much energy you have spent building a fortress around your life that you won't know what to do, right? C.S. Lewis puts uh, escaping in this way, and I love this, pass- or love this quote. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, right? Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We so often forget that everlasting joy and gladness is offered to us that we spend all of our time playing in the mud pies, right? Um, I forgot to put this passage up, but I do want to read another quote because uh, on the positive end, uh, Augustine says it like this. He says, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign God. You drove them from me and took their place, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. See, he's saying these, this idea of fruitless joys, those things we cling to because we think those are the things that are going to distract us from reality, or those are the things that are going to bring us immense, full joy, the things that promise us, right? But what does Augustine say? How sweet it was to be rid of those fruitless joys because you are the one who took, my pl- took the place of those, right? I love that. Okay, so escaping clearly ain't it, right? How about pretending? I believe while escaping is often the offer from the world, I often think pretending is the offer from the church. We are a hyper-independent society, and so any sharing of hardship, any request for help, any showing of weakness is often looked down on, right? Even if it's not explicitly said. 
Why are you burdening me with your problems? Get it together. Act like you're okay at least, right? And I believe this is so prevalent in the church and it drives away thousands of people. I believe that. I don't know what it is, but my generation in particular, and this might be true of other generations, but I can only speak for myself, uh, it puts a significant value on authenticity to the point where when many of us realize that many in the church were putting up a front, we're not willing to be authentic, we're not willing to ask these hard questions, it led so many people to wonder why people didn't believe what they said they believed, right? I believe a big faction of those deconstructing have been hurt by the pretending that is going on in the church, and they didn't want to be people who pretended anymore. So, as you can see, I don't think pretending seems to be a great solution either. So then let's end with this, and then I'm in my seat. Thirst, which doesn't necessarily sound like a super great situation either, right? Like, feel something that, you, that, that your body rejects, that your body freaks out when you feel this, right? If escaping, though, is seeking to avoid the desert and pretending is acting like we're always in an oasis, then thirsting is having the courage to acknowledge your reality, how it's affecting you, and wanting something better. It's saying, God, I do not always know how much I need you. Or, God, I need you to show me that you're here. Right? And expectantly waiting for an answer. Waiting for the water to come. Thirsting is recognizing our need for God and looking forward to the future glory that will come when we spend an eternity with him. Right? It's relying on the spirit here and now in the desert knowing he will sustain us now and prepare us for eternity with him, right? What did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, right? Listen to what Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, right? The present gloom, are achieving for us an eternal glory that are far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. <laughs> Allow yourselves to thirst for him. Thirst for more of his presence in your life and know that the water will eventually gush forth in the wilderness. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will what? Let me pray.